Hello, my friends. Welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanna LaFleur, and this is season four, episode 14. Cannot believe we're already at episode 14 of the season. We're going to be wrapping up in the next couple of weeks, and then I'm looking ahead to season five. I got some really exciting stuff coming at you. Cannot wait to get some of more of these episodes to you, and especially today. I am so excited to bring you Jonathan Merritt today. If you don't know Jonathan, he is a trusted, popular writer on religion, culture, and politics. Super educated, super smart, super uh, satirical as well. He's an award-winning contributor to The Atlantic. He's been a contributing editor in The Week. He's also written critically acclaimed books. And the one we want to really talk about today is Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing, and How We Can Revive Them. Of course, this podcast is all about thinking about language, words, the digital context that we live in, and how to communicate Jesus effectively in our time. So Jonathan has a lot to say about that. He's written like 3,500 articles in outlets like New York Times, USA Today, BuzzFeed, Washington Post. He's a regular contributor on television, radio, TV. He's been on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, NPR, PBS, CBS, 60 Minutes. I mean, it goes on and on. He's done it all. And so we're going to have just a really interesting conversation today. This conversation was recorded in February, and I kind of held off until now to get it to you just because I wanted to focus in a little more on some of those conversations around COVID-19 and all that in the last few weeks. But look forward to getting that conversation with Jonathan today. And if you haven't already joined, this is a great moment for you to go and join the Digital Church Facebook group. You can go to facebook.com slash group slash digital, or you can just search Digital Church on Facebook and you're going to find us. It's a group of us. There's over 500 of us now who are growing in our conversation, sharing knowledge, asking questions, building a community of people who care about church in the digital world. How do we do evangelism and discipleship? Would love for you to join. And of course, thank you so much to our partners and sponsors who are making this season possible. Compassion, my amazing friends over at Compassion, they are a partner to churches around the world, and they're working tirelessly right now to provide care and needed support to families and children in this pandemic. This pandemic is like a disaster like no other on a global scale. We're going to see for the first time in 100 years an increase in global poverty instead of decrease. But we can do something about it, and the Compassion staff are doing something about it, partnering with the local church around the world. They're doing things like they're making hand sanitizer for communities, and they're distributing food kits to homes of sponsor kids. They're doing medical masks and actually creating and making medical masks. Uh, they're doing all kinds of things with supplies and hygiene and food, water resources, and, and all of this while connecting digitally with people. I love that they're supporting one another through text and WhatsApp and all these digital things just like we can do in our country and countries all around the world. People are using their smartphones to connect and um, and express need and encourage one another. So go to compassion.ca slash COVID today to give. Would love you to be part of this. Uh, there's just such a huge need. Uh, the link's down in the show notes. Wycliffe College as well this Evangelical Graduate School of Theology at the University of Toronto. It's where I went. It's an amazing school to study theology. If you're looking for a master's or just a certificate, maybe you just want to take a course because you're interested in learning more about the Bible or church history or theology or Christian leadership, I really would love you to consider this place. It's so affordable. In Canadian dollars, it's $602 a course. So it's just incredibly affordable and it's flexible in class online. Mainly stuff is online right now. But hey, even for this fall, maybe you want to check it out, see if there's a course you want to dive into in the next couple of years. 
couple of weeks as it's coming up. So wickliffcollege.ca slash wordmadedigital. You can see more about the school, more about why I chose it, and more about, hey, you know why? Honestly, I think it might be an option that you should seriously consider. Okay, my friends, without further ado, here is my conversation with Jonathan Merritt. You're going to love it. Welcome to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. You're listening to Season 4, sponsored by Compassion Canada and Wycliffe College. Word Made Digital brings you interviews with Christian creatives and communicators to inspire, challenge, and equip you in your own work. The church has the best news in the world, so we want to help you be the best communicators in the world. Here we go. Jonathan Merritt, thank you so much for joining me on Word Made Digital today. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Oh, the the pleasure is all mine. I'm happy to be with you. <laughs> oh, by the way, where am I finding you today? Are uh, you, you are, are you at home? Me out where I am. I am. I am. I'm at home. I live. Um, I live in Manhattan, so I am in um, Chelsea. If you're familiar with the neighborhood, I live yeah. off of um, 21st Street. Okay. I um I normally am in Toronto, Canada, but the great city of Toronto, but uh but today I I happen to be in uh California. So it's a little warmer here where I am. But but when we dive in, could you just tell us could you tell everybody um who are you? Like can you give us a little bit of a bio and introduce yourself? Um so Jonathan my name is Jonathan Merritt, obviously. Um, and I am a, a writer. I am a, a columnist. I am a um, an author. So uh, my last book is called "Learning to Speak God from Scratch: um, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them." Um, I do a lot of column writing, in particular for uh, for uh, secular outlets. So I write for The Atlantic. I'm a contributing writer there. do some writing for The, uh, the New York Times um, as well. And uh, I, I can sort of um, be found at mostly news publications and sort of feature writing outlets um, that, are, that are similar to that, where I'm hoping to, like, translate a bit uh, of what is going on um, you know, in, in, in like Christian spaces for readers who may or may not be all that aware. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe let's start there. I'm curious about this. Um, you know, how did you get into writing in that kind of space? I think a lot of Christians live in the echo chamber of writing for Christians, about Christians, for Christian publications. Um, how did you, how did you end up there? And I'd love to know a little bit about what you're learning about how, or what you have learned about how to write about Christian things for a non-Christian, a secular audience? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it's just muscle memory because I live in uh, a city where I'm surrounded by um, people who are not uh, crit- mm-hmm. Christians, or at least maybe not in the traditional sense. It's just sort of the way that I live, and so my work becomes kind of an, ex- an extension um, of that. I mean, what's interesting is is that um, Christian scripts uh, are also cultural scripts because America is so um, influenced by Christianity. So to talk about 
Christianity is to talk about American culture. And so mm. it's not it's not quite as difficult, I think, um, to, to talk about these things in that context as some people might assume. Um, and when you uh, began doing this, was this you pitching? I'm just thinking of on like I'm, I'm asking probably for the listener who would love to do this with their life. Were you pitching to them? Did they come and find you? Was this the like were you writing articles and trying to get them into places like the Atlantic or how did that even come to be for you? You know, it's a it's a long process. It started about thirteen years ago, and um, I started out uh, decided I wanted to do this, and uh, it was first was about three years of pitching um, everyone under the sun and being rejected by them all, and then I finally kind of cracked into Christian magazine, uh, basically asking people to let me do the things that nobody wants to do. Unpaid pieces, short book reviews, news articles, film reviews, um, basically just asking them to let me do the things no one wants to do, proving myself, working my way up to do bigger and bigger pieces over many years, and then slowly pivoting into uh, the general market. So it it doesn't, you know, the, the, the process of kind of making to this place is not one that is either uh, lucrative or um, uh, quick. And yeah. so a lot of people will say, I want to, you know, they'll say, I, 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 I want to do what you do. And I'll say, no, you don't want to do what I do because you don't want to do what I did. And um, <laughs> but it's, for me, it's, it is, there's no shortcut um, to kind of finding your place um, in this, in this space. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably true in most things, isn't it? There's no shortcut, and the way to get there is hard, and that's why most people don't do it. <laughs> um, that's right. Yeah. yeah, that's so true. And so, I mean, your whole life is working with words. Um, and, um, you know, I often say on this podcast, you know, Christians, I mean the church, we have the best news in the world. And so we should be the best communicators in the world because we have the most important, I think we would, we would say of ourselves, we have the most important thing to say. Um, and yet often we're not, we're not great communicators. Um, I'd love to, to get into this whole conversation with you about what you were discovering and learning to speak God from scratch. And that's really why I wanted to, to have this interview with you because I'd just love to get in your head and in your research and in your writing about the power of words and why words matter. Um, can you tell us a bit about the premise of this book and where it came from? And then we can get closer into some of the details of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. You know, the, the book sort of came about when I moved uh, a number of years ago to New York City. I moved from the Bible Belt. And um, I began to realize that I, I was sort of encountering a language barrier. It wasn't that I could could no longer speak English. You know, I could hail a cab or order a, um, a hot dog from a street cart, but I couldn't speak God, what I call speaking God. I, I couldn't, it, with, with fluency, have um, spiritual conversations, use sacred words, at least not as well as I used to, that, that, um, that, that either people didn't understand what I was saying, and then when I would try to explain, Explain to them what I meant. I realized I didn't really fully understand 
what I was saying, or they understood what I would say when I was using some of these words, but they used them with different meanings than I did. And so it, it sort of was a, a moment when I decided I needed to go back and do some work. I needed to learn, as I titled the book, Learn to Speak God from Scratch. But I will say, what I discovered is, is that it wasn't just a personal problem, that it actually was a cultural crisis. I conducted a national survey of about 1,100 Americans, and I asked them this question, how often do you have spiritual or religious conversations? And what I found was that only about 7% of Americans say that they have spiritual or religious conversations on a regular basis, which we consider to be once a week. When you look at practicing Christians, so Christians who attend church regularly, I thought that number would skyrocket. It did not. Uh, only 13% of practicing Christians said that they had a spiritual or religious conversation uh, about once per week. That means that if you go to church on a Sunday and only the, the regulars show up, about one in eight of the Christians in that room are talking about spiritual things with any kind of regular frequency. And uh, I, I was really surprised by that. And so what this book really sought to do, the project that I devoted my life to for this, this number of years was to say, why is that? Why yeah. is it that we feel so uncomfortable? And then what, if anything, can we do about it? Right. And, and do you think some of that has to do with, I mean, there's so many places I want to ask you questions about this, but do you think some of it has to do with like an, is it an individualization of faith where people, you know, you do it on Sundays in a group, but it's personal and private. Is that sort of the mentality? Why aren't people having conversations about this? If it's something yeah, that, they, are, that means something to them. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, it's a great question. And in fact, I think you asked it, I think the right way, because we, we talk about the things we care about. You know, if you ever wonder why a parent prattles on about their toddler, it's because they care about their toddler. That's yeah. why they do it. They talk about it because they, they care about their child. And yet so many of us say we care about faith, but we don't talk about what we say we care about. I think for one reason, um, it's sort of we don't maybe actually care as much as we think that, that, that the, our, our fire for our own spirituality, our fire for our relationship with the divine has begun to dwindle. And as a result, it's not bubbling up and pouring out of our mouth. But there are also another range of reasons. I, I did in this survey, I took the people who speak God infrequently, who say that they don't have a spiritual or religious conversations more than one or two times a year uh, or, or zero. I took all of those people and I said, okay, I think there were 508 people in that group. And I said, okay, tell me why. Uh, it lists any of the reasons uh, that, that you don't have spiritual conversations more often. The number one reason I, I got, uh, 28%, said religious conversations always seem to create tension or arguments. And, of course, if you've ever been at the Thanksgiving table and your you know, Uncle Philip is shaking a drumstick at you, having a theological debate, you go, you know, I have enough stress in my life. I don't need to fight 
about my faith. Uh, 23% said they weren't religious. So that's, you know, people say they don't really care about the topic. Uh, about 17%, and I'm guessing if I did this again, if I repeated this again today, because this was conducted in the middle of 2017, but my guess is, is if we repeated this today, this number would be higher. About 17% say that they feel put off by how religion has been politicized. Right. Uh, another um, 17% say they just really don't know enough to talk about religious or spiritual topics that when you were, if you were to ask some questions like, what does grace mean? How would you define that? I bet, I bet among your listeners, if we were to ask that question, you would get almost as many answers as people listening. That, that when you don't know what you're talking about, you lose the confidence uh, to speak uh, about God. Now, among young people in particular, we saw a big bump uh, with young people who say, I don't want to be seen as a fanatic or an extremist. They're very put off by that. And then there are a lot of people who say, I've been hurt by religious words in the past, that they had a pastor or a parent or a teacher who used religious language to shame them or to scold them or to oppress them in some way. And so it kind of the city and uh, they avoid it for that reason. Right, right. Well, and it's interesting then, it sounds like in some ways it's, uh, for those who are within the church, it's a, I'm hearing it almost as a discipleship issue. It's, it's a teaching of, the, or a teaching of the faith. Um, you know, uh, the leaders assuming and over-assuming what people know and understand when they're using words and then passing these words on <laughs> and nobody really knows what anybody else is talking about. <laughs> oh, man. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, and beyond, you know, obviously the the political context. You know, it's interesting uh, just hearing, I appreciate as a Canadian, I'm in probably a closer to New York context than I would be to an American South. Um, and so probably the more mm-hmm. global audience of this podcast would, would relate more to New York's feeling and mentality around Christianity than the, the uh, American South. But for so for a lot of people, can you explain a little bit more about the Southern thing. I know you come out of a Southern Baptist background yourself, but can you tell a little bit, what is the, like when you realized when you went to New York, there was this cultural difference. Um, can you tell, say a little bit more about that? Cause I think more listeners to this podcast would be the New York type of person than the Southern type of person. Yeah. You know, I think, and, um, you're going to have a, a much higher, um, level of religiosity in the South, that religion is something that is assumed. Christianity is, um, is something that is assumed in many places in the Deep South. Now, I imagine that that's changing somewhat, uh, but it still, it still is kind of a, um, a cultural phenomenon. You know, if you meet a new acquaintance in, in some places in the South, uh, you might be. You might ask where the person goes to church, rather than huh. if they do. Right. Um, you know, uh, you, 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 there's sort of a cultural Christian lingo that most people speak, and almost everybody else understands. You know, if you're if you're in rural Tennessee or Arkansas and you sneeze, a stranger might say to you, "God bless you." Well. Right. The sneezer doesn't stop and say, wait, what do you mean by God or bless? 
it's just sort of <laughs> assumed that we all kind of understand what you're getting at. And yeah. so it's not that everyone is Christian, but rather that the Christian religion and faith and some of the kind of um, uh, Christian values and ideals, if you will, are more tightly woven into the fabric of the broader culture uh, in the South. Right. Yeah. And so it's this um, <laughs> this cross-cultural work that, that you're doing more and more of that's kind of bringing to light um, really the changing culture as a whole in the U.S. So can you, can you give some examples of some of these words? I mean, you've already given a few, but some words that you're discovering have so much power if only we understood what they meant. <laughs> um, words that you find that we need to talk about more if we would only understand them. Yeah. You know, I, I think, um, when, when I set out to kind of work on this book, that was a big question because what I, I essentially, uh, say is that the way to revive sacred speech is to play with words, to allow words to kind of transform and change in your hands. And so, um, I, I talk about pain, for example, uh, I, talk about disappointment, mystery. Uh, obviously, I think the word sin is uh, a word that uh, we don't use a lot because it feels sort of negative. Yeah. Uh, I, I think grace is, is one. And one that I think a lot of people um, have really connected with in the book is the word bless, because I think that's uh, a word that has been used a lot. It hasn't gone away, but it's been used a lot in ways that maybe are less than helpful. Hashtag blessed. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even as you say, the bless, the bless you after you sneeze and those kinds of things. And um, so are you finding in the navigation of this that you're needing to to make new words or you, or is it that when you talk to people, you're having to define the words that you're using? Like what sort of, or is like, you're actually having to translate into a whole new language. What are you sort of finding in that dance? Is it better to, to use the old word and explain it or uh, to try and find a different word? You know, um, I think that um, the answer is yes. I think new words can always, arise, uh, particularly as new concepts arise that demand uh, a new word, um, new, new ways of experiencing God um, are talked about. And so you do see um, words that uh, are in the vocabulary of faith that come in and out of vogue because a generation uh, needs to make use of them. Yeah. On the other hand, I think we we don't need to just sort of throw away words that are in some way tainted or problematic, uh, because a word is just an empty container. A word has no meaning. It only has the meaning that we give to it, that we ascribe to it. It doesn't inherently have meaning. So we just say, we all agree this word means this thing. Um, you know, a dictionary doesn't tell you what a word means. A dictionary yeah. tells you how a word is used. 
which is why we have to keep updating them all the time because words are being used in new ways and different ways over time. And so if we don't like what a word has come to mean, but we believe that the meaning that that word points to generally is helpful, is worth preserving, then I think we have to, instead of just sort of saying, hey, let's all just avoid that word and we won't talk about what it's sort of pointing to. Instead, it's doing the hard work of beginning to use that word and say, hey, what if we talk about this thing in this way instead? Is that actually going to be more life-giving? Is that going to be less oppressive? Is that going to uh, avoid the problem of misrepresenting God? And um, uh, I think that it's a much harder thing to do, for sure. Uh, but what I'm advocating when in this book is, is to do the hard work. And I think a lot of people go, oh, you know what, I don't want to do the hard work, rather than have a conversation about sin or brokenness. In fact, I was doing a study recently um, of what you would call the human universal things that are common among all humans in all cultures. Um, it's been written about um, a Christian Smith, who's a sociologist at the University of Notre Dame, has written about this. Steven Pinker, on a, on a popular level, um, has written about this. One of the interesting things is, is that every culture for all time, all humans, every human culture across space and time has had some concept of what you might call brokenness, uh, not rightness. They, they've had a concept that there's a difference between what is and what ought. Well, you know, Christians have a word for that. We call it sin. Now, what may happen is, is you go, well, I don't like the word sin because sin has been used as a weapon against people. And so we don't like it. Maybe it's tainted. Well, you can certainly throw it away. But you still have this inescapable reality that every human for all time has noticed, which is there is a difference between is and ought. And you still have to come up with a word to call that chasm between isness and oughtness. So just by getting rid of the word sin, you haven't solved a problem. You've just gotten <laughs> right. rid of a container, right? right? And so now you've just got to come up with a new container, and then you have to convince people to use it. Uh, so it's not like you've made your job any easier. Uh, you, you haven't. And so for a lot of people, I think they think, they think getting, getting rid of a word will solve a problem. Uh, what they realize is, is it, it, it does nothing uh, of the sort. Right. Well, the word that that I th am thinking of right now, uh, you know, in these days that I'm struggling with is the word evangelical. Um, I think... Typically in my life, I would have described up until more recently, I would have described myself that way. I am an evangelical, um, but the word has changed meanings and I think been co-opted in a political kind of way, in a way that I don't mean when I say it. And so I'm trying to figure out when to use the word, how to use the word. Do I need a new word? <laughs> um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, that word or, or how, you're, how you're using it or, or changing it in your own context. You know, um, what I really want to, uh, what I'm really centering on in this book 
is what I would call historic Christian lingo, right? Mm-hmm. The, the historic language of faith. So sin, for example, is a word that has been rooted in our tradition for all time. I am, I'm less concerned about what you might call cultural Christian lingo. So, yeah. you know, words that kind of pop up and, and go away. Evangelical sort of falls into that second category. Um, I think, it, it, you know, I, I don't have um, uh, an opinion on whether it should be saved or not. But I will say, I wrote an article for The Atlantic called What Does Evangelical Mean Anyway? And uh, I actually talked about this. I talked about the different ways of kind of understanding that word. And it depends on the way that that you think about it. It can be a political term. It can be a denominational term. It can be a theological term. It can be a sociological term that has kind of um, uh, an unspoken adjective in front of it, like white. So uh, if if you talk about it just in the etymological sense, it describes really all Christians, anybody who bears uh, the good news, who carries the good news. So it, it, it's, a, it's a word that has been sort of nebulous and diffuse um, for a very long time. Uh, I kind of settle on um, what would be called the Bebbington's quadrilateral. Uh, so biblicism, which means the, uh, the Bible is central. Crucicentrism, which is sort of the idea that the cross is the very pinnacle of the story of the gospel, which is not true, by the way, for all Christians. It is for those who, who call themselves evangelicals. Conversionism, which says you, you have to kind of make a conscious decision to accept this good news and to form a relationship uh, with Jesus in order to be right with God. And then um, activism, which says you can't just be a Christian privately. It has to make its way into the public expression of who you are and what you do. And so those four, at the convergence of those four things, I think is probably the best and most common definition of evangelical. But then there is kind of all of the cultural baggage, right? All the stuff that's kind of stuck to that word now, particularly in the age of Donald Trump, where uh, the religious right has kind of reasserted itself. And so there are a lot of people, I think, who would fit that definition in terms of that quadrilateral. They would, you, you call out each of those things, and they would raise their hands and say, me too. But then when you get down to it, you'd say, so you're an evangelical, and they would say no. Uh, not because <laughs> right. they don't fit, not, not because they don't like what the word means, it's because they don't like how the word feels. And that's, um, that's totally legitimate, that words don't just have meaning, words have feelings. And we can sometimes object not to the meaning, but to the feeling of mm-hmm. a word. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. I mean, I, I'm, it's coming to mind a, a podcast that I heard you interviewed on, um, which was Preachers and Sneakers, actually. Um, for those listening, uh, go find that conversation. I just thought I really appreciated you entering into the dialogue of sort of what is happening and what in the evangelical church or within, you know, sort of uh, mega church Christendom in America and around the world. And, and some, what I'm hearing sort of throughout this conversation is ultimately around, it's a deconstruction Um, but, but what I appreciate about you is also that you're trying to also reconstruct, um, 
And what you were saying in Preachers and Sneakers on this podcast, I don't, I don't know when you recorded it, so I'll refresh your memory a little bit. But it was this, this idea of like people who deconstruct, but then don't actually do the work of rebuilding. So we don't like this word, or we don't like this thing, or we don't want, we want to critique something. Um, and I think there is an important place for that, as as you're saying as well. But then people just stop there. Um, so what, what is, the, and, and they don't maybe try to rebuild or to make a new way. So how, you know, sometimes there are things that we can't fix. Um, you know, there are, there are things that we deconstruct, but we don't actually have a solution for. So maybe, maybe that's just as simple as a word. We, we know that this word isn't helpful, but we're not sure what new word to use. Or we, we acknowledge that this perhaps something like in something within a mega church or something within, you know, all the stuff that preachers and sneakers is posting about. Uh, we know that that's maybe not helpful, but, but how do we, how do we critique it if we don't, necessarily even have an idea of what to do next. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How, how can we participate in the work of deconstruction? Uh, and is it dangerous to do so if we don't actually know how to construct the new thing? Yeah. Uh, well, here, here is um, the, the, the cold hard truth, which is we never know. We're always figuring it out. Every every generation um, that follows Jesus is figuring it out. Um, there's yeah. a great book by a guy named Jaroslav Pelikan, um, who's a German scholar, uh, and he wrote a book called Jesus Through the Centuries. And he talks about how every generation saw Jesus, crystallized Jesus in their own way, right? So in the Renaissance, they saw Jesus as the, the distillation of all beauty, and as a result, they produced unbelievable art. Um, the civil rights movement crystallized Jesus as a liberator, um, as, a, as a, a sort of a, um, a general for justice. And it allowed them to do some amazing work. And so we'll each, every generation sort of comes forward and says, who's Jesus going to be in our day? What is the faith going to look like in our day? And in order to kind of be a part of that ongoing evolution, what the, the first Protestants sort of were getting at when they said that Christianity should reform and always be reforming. Uh, that, that kind of process of ongoing evolution happens, and I talk about this at, at, at length in my book, using different uh, figures and thinkers like N.T. Wright, all the way over to people like Richard Rohr, who use different language. They'll use construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. But sometimes they will say, uh, they, they will use it in, in, in um, they'll say integration, disintegration, reintegration, or you'll hear these kinds of, of of um, uh, sort of these triads a lot, that a lot of people from different traditions will talk about those things. The problem is, is that within each generation, you have kinds of people, groups of people who get stuck at various points in that process. Very few Christians end up being the ones who make it to the final step, the third step. In the construction step, is 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 going to be what you might call traditionalist or conservative, right? And so they, the construction says, here's the system, and the system was given to you by your grandma or that the the mentor that you you love from yesteryear, right? It's the framework, the dominant framework that you were handed from the people just behind you, 
And conservatives, as their name sort of indicates, their job is to kind of hold on to that, to keep to, they, they do form, I think, an important counterbalance in Christianity to keep us from just sort of tearing everything down, tearing everything apart, saying that nothing is, is worth anything. Uh, but they get stuck with construction. They, they have a really hard time when you challenge some of their ways of thinking. You know, uh, if you think about words like sovereignty, well, if you go into a conservative Calvinist church and you go, I don't think that we really understand what the word sovereignty means, or I don't think we really understand what the word salvation means or how it sanctification works, uh, you're not going to last long in that community. They're not <laughs> looking to step forward into kind of this deconstructive phase where you open it up for conversation. Now, deconstruction, which, by the way, is different than destruction— I think a lot of people think deconstruction is destruction. Well, if you start to deconstruct the faith, you're just destroying the faith. And that's not the case. You might think of like, if you were to create a, uh, you see sometimes on the Food Network, they'll do a deconstructed um, chicken casserole or deconstructed, right? They're, they're, all the pieces are still there, but you're taking the pieces apart so that you can kind of see them individually, so that you can taste those flavors individually. You can begin to say, think, do I like that flavor? It was hidden when it was integrated into everything, but did I, do I like it when I look at it just by itself? It can be a very helpful way of analyzing. The problem with deconstruction is those who are more progressive, as their name suggests, their job is to push forward beyond the place that we just came from, beyond the frameworks that we were handed by someone else. And they form a, a, a really interesting counterbalance, I think, in the Christian movement, because their impulse is to keep us from getting stuck. Because otherwise, we only talk about God in ways that made sense 500 years ago, 100 years ago, 50 years ago. And so they're constantly dialoguing about cultural trends, cultural realities. They're willing to have tough conversations, but they will often get stuck there. And so I have a lot of progressive friends who, for them, deconstruction does become destruction because they can't move beyond it. And they're, they're trying to make the chicken casserole, and before you know it, they're sitting Indian-style on the floor with frozen bags of peas and uh, uncut carrots going, I don't know what to do. And they just walk away from it all. And that, mm -hmm. to me, is also sad. It's sad in the same way as, as, a, as a calcified conservative who isn't willing to ask hard questions, in the same way the progressive who just tears everything apart and then ends up as some sort of post-Christian spiritual wanderer. I think that, to me, is also uh, lamentable. But the really, really gutsy folks, I think, are the ones who can move through each of those stages to the stage of reorientation or reconstruction. And that's to say, okay, we've taken all this apart. What does it look like to put it together? At the end of the day, we want a casserole. We want a great feast. We want to set the table. We're committed to putting dinner on the table. But we may not put it on the table in the exact same way that Grandma did. So the people who are willing to do that, I think, are the ones who make Christianity keep moving. And a lot of people, I think, don't do that because it takes a lot of work. And it takes a lot of courage. Now, I really appreciate what you're saying. It is it is a courageous effort to say, to look it in the face and have an honest, this isn't 
not everything here is right and good. And I'm going to do the hard work of figuring out how to move through this into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the it's the classic, you know, the baby in the bath, throw the baby out with the bathwater scenario that I, I mean, I see in in my own context with lots of friends of mine, people I love very much who, um, yeah, who throw it all away. Um, without doing some of the hard work of working through it. And I don't think that they would probably say that of themselves. So maybe that's my, you know, that's my observation of them that, you know, you don't like something. And so you, you just give up on the whole thing rather than remembering the pieces of it that could come through to the next space with you. So where are you seeing some hopefulness? Maybe you have a, a a community, a person, a, a church, a, a podcast, is there any resources or things that you're connecting to or things that you'd want other people to, to check out as places of like hope in this process um, mm-hmm. that towards the future? You know, I think, I, I think one is where we're seeing some new life and there are a lot, I think there are a lot of, of areas. Um, I think, well, I'll give you two, I'll give you two areas that to me are interesting they're interesting and they're what I might call um, reconstructive movements. Uh, the first one is, and, and this, by the way, is not a political statement. I mean, people who follow my work will know that I am no fan of Donald Trump. On the other hand, my mother loves the guy. So you can love Donald Trump and love Jesus. Um, it's not a statement on that. I have my preferences. Other people are welcome to have their preferences. However, from a, a cultural standpoint or a sociological standpoint, the, the election of Donald Trump has created a fracture among evangelicals because it used to be that to be evangelical was to be Republican. And that's not happening anymore. That Mm -hmm. the construction that we were given, it was a construction that was largely birthed in the American imagination coming uh, in the uh, late 1970s. So maybe I'll just sort of walk you you through this. In the 1970s, there was a reaction that happened. There was in the 1960s in America what we would call the American Cultural Revolution which really was a convergence of several different things all at once. You had the civil rights movement, and it was challenging ways of thinking about race and and integrating uh, the races, whether it's through marriage, uh, the workplace, in educational spaces. The civil rights movement brought that forward. You had the rise of uh, a particular wave of feminism, and it was raising questions about the, uh, the genders and how they should interact with each other. You had uh, the modern gay rights movement that just south of where I am was sparked because of some riots down at a, uh, a bar there called the Stonewall Inn. And so the modern gay rights movement sparked from that, where we began to have conversations about uh, sexual orientation in ways that we had never talked about those things before you had uh, also a range of court cases legalizing birth control, legalizing abortion through Roe v. Wade in the 1970s, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, also changing the way that the Bible and prayer sort of was was functioning in public school systems. All of this converged in a way that made evangelicals feel very 
uncomfortable. They felt like their like the world was changing too fast and that it was changing in a direction that they didn't particularly like. Evangelicals up to this point had largely been apolitical. They had never really been involved except sort of in the prohibition movement in the 1920s. They never were really mobilized in political conversations. They really believed like our job is to win souls. Um, like they voted, but they didn't see politics as kind of a natural extension of their faith. Well, all of that changed. And they began to mobilize in the public square. They became a political force with the rise of the religious right and Jerry Falwell's moral majority. That is the framework that evangelicals have been given. That's the orientation. That's the construction that has been with us since the 1970s. And that construction said the Republican Party is, or conservatism, political conservatism at large, is, 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 is a natural expression of the way that we do faith. That's changing. Now you're seeing a deconstruction of that, that you have people who agree theologically with a Jerry Falwell. But they say, when it comes to politics, I don't know that we figured this out. They're sort of breaking it down. Now, what is going to come from that? What will the reconstruction be? What will, what will be the new arrangement that these evangelicals will make with the public square? We don't know, because we're right now in the midst of the deconstruction. It's a lot of criticism. It's a lot of uncomfortability. It's a lot of critique. But you don't really have a positive vision, right? You, you will hear people on the other side who will say, well, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to vote for this person? Are you telling me that I, that I have to vote for somebody who's pro-choice? And people don't really know how to answer. They don't have the positive vision, the reconstructive vision. But I think we're going through this nat uh, natural uh, labor uh, time of, of labor and gestation because something else will kind of be reborn that we'll see 15 years from now, we'll have a new chapter in this. So I think, I think that is, you know, whether you think that's hopeful or not, um, that's on, that's up to you. But I do think that we're seeing a new arrangement with the public square. Phase one came pre 1970s. So say 1900, the 1970s, that was sort of one construction phase. The next one came from the 1970s until 2016, and now we're entering into a new one, and I don't know exactly what that will be. The other one that I would say is, is you're seeing liturgy come back among evangelicals, that you have evangelicals who are embracing practice-based Christianity. They're embracing contemplative uh, practices, meditation, a silence, Solitude. They're reading people like Henry Nowen, uh, Thomas Merton, and they're really trying to get in touch with some of these more um, uh, Catholic, big C, and and even um, Eastern streams of Christianity. It doesn't mean that they're like converting or or they're trying to kind of get out of their current stream, but they're beginning to reintegrate some of this. Mm -hmm. And so you have people who are. Evangelicals who are integrating Eucharist, they're, you're getting corporate prayers in services, and they still have a guitar on stage. Like they've incorporated these folk instruments that evangelicals brought in in the 1980s and 90s. They still held on to that, but they're reintegrating liturgy and practice-based forms of Christianity. And so I think that's going to be 
something I would definitely keep my eye on because it's a way that I think evangelicals can root themselves in his, in history, which they don't, they're not always good at and still maintain a little bit of flexibility to kind of be pragmatic in the way that they take the gospel forward in a, in a, in a culture that's constantly changing. Yeah, that's so good. I mean, I know for for you and some of your circle of friends, as, as well as myself, I went to an Anglican uh, seminary and I lived in the seminary, you know, in this old Harry Potter style building. And I know that's been a transition you've more recently made in your own life. And, and it's this leaning towards what can we learn from a different tradition, Episcopal, Anglican, you know, the traditions of the liturgies, the robes, the bells, the smells, the incense, whatever it may be. There's some of those things that, you know, there's something there to be learned, perhaps, or to be reintegrated into our own faith. Um and uh, like I think of John Mark Comer as a very popular uh, author, speaker, pastor, writer, podcaster these days, uh, who's doing exactly that and gaining such a huge following because he's telling us, hey, like maybe your phone is killing you. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, maybe we need less time there and more time in the solitude and silence and these, you know, really traditional practices um, as mm-hmm. we reconst- as we construct something new. Yeah. Um, just as I, I know we're kind of coming to the end of our time here together. I'm wondering if you can just say um, in brief, what are you working on now or what's something you're excited about in a new project? What should we keep an eye out for in the future from you? If people are going to after today, I know there's a lot of people who are going to start to want to read your book, but also start following you. What should we what should we be watching for coming up from you? Well, I um, I I am working on a new book. Um, I am really trying to uh, drill down on a couple of, of, of questions. But one of them is like, what does it look like to be human in this current moment? Um, I believe that being human is a sacred thing. I don't believe it's something that self-help gurus have cornered the market on. Um, to really be your true and authentic self is something that I think is uh, a constantly taught and explored in the pages of Scripture, even though we've overlooked those those passages often or just flat out forgotten them. And I want to do that through the lens of my personal story, in part, uh, as well as kind of engaging the text in maybe a, a unique way. And uh, I, I want to write the story of, of the last eight years of my life and what that has been like to sort of um, reconnect with myself. I think so many of us are estranged from ourselves that mm-hmm. when you, you know, one, one phrase, I wrote this, this this morning, that when I scroll through Instagram, the phrase that keeps coming to mind is, um, these are not our faces. These are, these are, it's caked on makeup. It's, um, it's a beautiful uh, Mardi Gras mask, but these are not our faces. It doesn't feel like I'm really looking at our humanity. It's something else. And I don't think that that's healthy. I don't think that becoming some false version of ourselves um, is what God intends. I don't think that's what the life abundant looks like. And so uh, I want to I wanna kind of identify portals through which we can uh, discover ourselves as the true creations of God 
and to see ourselves the way God does. And so um, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like just yet because uh, I'm just starting to write it. But of course, in the same way, like learning to speak God from scratch uh, was not supposed to be the book that it was either. So um, I think that the book will take shape as, uh, as it is written. I love that. <laughs> I'm excited to read it. Uh, your next work. I think it's, you know, it's always timely when you bring something, whether that's just an article um, or, or something like a greater work like this. It's always very timely and, and courageous what you write. So I appreciate um, what you're doing. And so where can people find you if people want to find you or maybe mm-hmm. they want to read your work or follow you on social media or, you know, have you come to an event that they're running? You know, maybe they want to have you as a speaker. Um, where can people where can people best get a hold of you? Yeah, they can. They, I'd say follow me on on uh, Instagram. Follow me on Twitter. I'm really active in both of those spaces. Or you can log on to my website at jonathanmerritt.com. Awesome. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much um, for this conversation, an important conversation, and uh, can't wait for people to to think more with us about words and why they matter in this digital age. Yeah, that sounds great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Um, that's the end of the podcast, but thanks so much. I appreciate the conversation and you taking the time today to, to do this. Um, yeah, I think what you're doing and what you're working on is, um, uh, it's just so timely and significant and particularly in the American church. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm always feeling as Canadians, we feel a little bit like out sort of sitting on the fence sitting on the wall, peering over at this, what is our, what are our friends in America doing? (laughs) And, uh, you know, and we have our own problems in Canada. We have every country has their own problems, but, uh, no, I, I really appreciate your voice, um, in the midst of this, um, really challenging time, you know, and even just, I appreciate, I mean, from what I know of your own story, even just the differences you have from, even you said on the podcast, you know, your mom loves Donald Trump and you don't. Uh, but I, mm-hmm. I find that, you know, I think most generally Canadians would lean, you know, Donald, like people in Canada would be scratching their heads, trying to understand how Donald Trump was elected at all. But, uh, <laughs> but, but it's this way that you're able to do it with, I think a lot of love because, you know, it's in your own family context and you, you have, um, a kind way of approaching disagreement, um, in the midst of a lot of just like vitriol and like crazy internet anger that comes at, comes at people. So I, you know, I appreciate that you're able to navigate that so well. Oh, thanks. I really appreciate it. Well, it's been my pleasure being with you. And if you need anything else, just let me know. Oh, thanks so much. Well, take care. Have a great day. All right. We'll chat soon. Okay. Bye. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining on the podcast. Loved finally being able to sit down with him and have that conversation. I just respect his insights. I think he's fresh at what he says and speaks in a way that we need to hear and we need to communicate and think about how we talk about God. Hey, next up on the podcast, Grant Baldwin, the creator of The Speaker Lab. He teaches speakers how to consistently find and book 
paid speaking gigs. So, hey, if that's you or someone you know, want to make sure you lean in next week to the episode with Grant Baldwin. You're going to um, just learn a ton from his insights. Thanks, of course, to Compassion and Wycliffe who are making this podcast possible this season. Compassion.ca slash COVID is a place you can go to see what's going on in the global community around COVID-19 and how your timely donation can be a huge part of helping people who are in absolute crisis right now in a pandemic. And of course, Wycliffe College, an amazing seminary if you want to learn and grow in your skills as a theologian, as a pastor, as a leader, just as a Christian, as a Jesus follower. WycliffeCollege.ca slash WordMadeDigital. And you can check out more information about all the stuff you could check out this fall and this winter. Finally, don't forget to join the Digital Church Facebook group. Would love to see you there. And we'll see you back next week with Grant Baldwin. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Word Made Digital podcast with Joanna LaFleur. If you like this content, hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Rate it and share this episode with your friends. Head over to wordmadedigital.com for more free tools and helpful content for creatives and communicators. We love helping you communicate the best news in the world.